Hello, people of the way. Uh, if you have your Bible, open up to Leviticus 26. We're going to continue um, through Leviticus 26. We're almost at the very end, so a little bit further, but we're almost at the end. Something I have to say is I have a new, a new love and appreciation for the book of Leviticus. Uh, I could go into reasons why, the multifaceted reasons why, but uh, I think I'll save that for another day. Uh, but in Leviticus 26, look what happens here. You know, the Lord is speaking to the people. He's speaking through Moses. And this is what he says here in verse 1. He says, you shall not make idols for yourself. Remember, it's like a lot of the, remember what our Lord says, how he says on these two things, hang all the law and the prophets. What are the two things? To love the Lord and to love people. On these two, hang all the law and the prophets. And I think it's so incredible when we see these passages, these warnings that are included in the statutes, which uh, augment the original Ten Commandments, or supplement the original Ten Commandments, or a little reiteration of the Ten Commandments. And we're going to see that throughout all these writings of the law. And you're going to see even uh, some of the prophets, when they make mention of these things, you know, what the Lord said when they say, thus saith the Lord, it's a reiteration of the law, or in uh, many, many cases, much more cases, it's a reminder of the law and who the Lord is. Even as the Lord reveals His grace and mercy. And yes, I'm speaking about the Old Testament. He says here in verse 1, You shall not make idols for yourself. This happens when God is forgotten. That's what happens when God is forgotten. Old Testament and New Testament idolatry. As New Covenant believers, anything that comes above the Lord Jesus Christ is an idol. If that's you, repent. Get rid of that idol. Because Jesus Christ must be preeminent in your life. I can't make that happen. You can't make that happen for me, and I can't make that happen for you. You have a choice to make. And I urge you, make that choice. For Jesus Christ to be preeminent in your life. And you think of preeminence... You know, you think of, you know, it, it, it's not like a uh, uh, prominent among many. No, it is preeminent above all. Jesus Christ, in your life, in my life too, we're in the same boat. And this is what he says here in verse 1. Neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you reap up for yourselves. Very interesting. For yourselves. And I have to tell you, and it's going to break your heart. It breaks my heart, and I, I pray that it breaks your heart. You say, why, why, why are you going to pray that my heart is broken? Because as we continue our study through the Old Testament, you're going to see the camp of Israel. They forget the Lord. And when I say that, I pray it breaks your heart. Because, you know, when it breaks my heart, when I read these passages, it's like, oh, you know, the, you, you've forgotten. We were going to read passages in the Samuels, in the Chronicles. It's like, wow, what are you doing? You've forgotten. Don't you remember? Don't you remember? And then it reminds me of me. And I pray that it reminds you 
of you. These mistakes, the steps that Israel takes, the steps that a tribe takes that leads to the Lord becoming forgotten. And I pray that you remember, I pray that I remember for all of my days, for all of your days, for all of all of our days as the ecclesia, the koinonia, the body of Christ until we die. Because the Lord can become forgotten in the life of a Christian as new covenant believers. The Lord can become forgotten. Remember the Miletus meeting in Acts 20? How elders in the church, it's possible for an elder in the church, for a shepherd to become a wolf. How does that happen? How in the world does that happen? The Lord becomes forgotten. Don't let that happen in your life. And that's what's so beautiful about a steady diet of the Word of God. Learning from the Word of God. The ecclesia, the koinonia, oneness in Christ, oneness with the body, all of us in Christ. Unity, church unity. And I'm not talking about church unity where it's like, okay, you know, you have a cross on your door. You know, we have a cross on our door and, you know, let's be partners. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about unity in Christ in accordance with the Word of God. Because we're living in a day and age where you could see a cross on the door of the building, go inside, and nothing but utter poison is being taught from the pulpits. Poison for God's people, for the sheep, for the lambs. Poison. So I'm not talking about church unity of, okay, you know, uh, uh, we're uh, whatever, you know, Lutherans and Episcopals and Trinitarians. I'm not talking about that. That's more of an interfaithism, which, you know, is an indicator of the last days. I'm not talking about ecumenical. I'm talking about unity in the bride of Christ, in the body of Christ, in accordance with the truth of God's holy word and sound doctrine. And it's so sad because, you know, you're going to see these passages in the Old Testament where it happens with these future generations. The Lord becomes forgotten. And what do they do? They carve up images, sacred pillars that they rear up for themselves. Just as is written here when the Lord is warning them, don't do that. Nor shall you set up, he says in continuation of verse 1, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. Reverence the holy place. My holy place is how it translates. My holy place. The tabernacle. Now that the tabernacle is constructed. Remember the Lord gave Moses the blueprints when we were studying uh, in, in Exodus. When Moses received the blueprints. And then he comes down and then they start building. Well, several other things happen. He comes down and the golden calf is there. But when he comes back down from the mountain again, they start construction. In future chapters in the Old Testament, you're going to see the construction of the temple. What about you and me as New Covenant believers? What about you and me? 
when your body is the temple. Your body is the temple. And then all of a sudden you start to see reverence my sanctuary. Is your body the Lord's? Does your body belong to Him? Does your mind belong to Him? Does your heart belong to Him? Because if that's the case, let it be a motivator, an impetus, a warning, an urging to deny the things that He doesn't like. You hear me mention the big ticket items, sex, drugs, rock and roll. You know, the meth, the crack, the strip clubs, the porno, the pornography, the whatever. Deny those things. Why? Because your temple, which is your body, isn't really yours. It belongs to the Lord. If it's yielded to Him, and I pray it is yielded to Him, and I pray that we, as the ecclesia, as the body, that we forever yield to Him. Until our very last beautiful, blessed breath. That very last breath that we take on this earth. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's the fight of the Christian. That's the steadfast nature and character of the Christian. And when I say Christian, I'm not speaking about, you know, mainline, you know, whatever, Episcopalian, Lutheranism, Trinitarian, Trinitarian. I'm not speaking about all that. I'm speaking about Christianity in accordance with the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament. Old interpreting new, new interpreting old, in sound doctrine as Bereans. And the Word became flesh. I'm talking about a people who abide in Christ and Christ in them. Have reverence for His holiness. Remember Moses says, Be holy for I am holy. Thus saith the Lord, Be holy for I am holy. You say, oh, that's Old Testament. Well, hold on a second. Peter says it too. Be holy for the Lord is holy. What does that tell you? What does that tell me? Let's be holy. How? How do we be holy? The Word of God. Yielding to the Word of God. Yielding to the Holy Spirit. And abiding in Christ. He says this at the end of verse 2. I am the Lord. I love these passages so much where, you know, you said, I am the Lord your God. Little, little tiny, little phrase here. I am the Lord. I mean, if you're a non-believer, you read this, I am the Lord. Like, okay, that's fine. But when you are a believer and you're abiding in Christ and you see this, I am the Lord. It's like, okay, Lord, I worship you. You are the Lord. Now, let's, for a brief moment, let's skip verse 3. Let's skip verse 3 and we're going to go to verse 4. And, you know, I read from the New King James Version and the first letter or the first word in verse 4 is then. We're going to skip that too. So let's start in verse 4. I will give you rain in its season. You know, something I have to say. These are beautiful, beautiful promises of the Lord. 
beautiful, beautiful promise of the Lord and highly, highly desirable. This is what he says in verse 4. Skipping the word then, I read that in New King James. He says, I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. So no famine. No famine. Everything is plentiful. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage. Threshing here is the, the extracting of grain. And that, the threshing, shall last until the time of vintage. And that's the uh, crops of grapes, like, you know, the, uh, the grape crops. And then, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. So it's like, you know, planting for the next seasons. Planting. And what I love about verse 5 here, you see the full cycles of production from threshing to, vin uh, uh, to the vintage, the grape crop, uh, and then uh, the sowing, the planting for the next season. Full cycle of production. If, if it's a four-month cycle of threshing, a four-month cycle of vintage, a four-month cycle of sowing, then all four months are busy. Nothing meager in time, nothing meager in work, and nothing meager in harvest. I mean, if there was, a, 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 if it was a period of, uh, you know, like, you know, limited crops, maybe you'd be working for two weeks. Instead of the full four months, you're only working a week. Oh, that's all the land can produce. That's all the that's all the crops that I have. That's all the uh, uh, the threshing I can do. I only have work for a week, or I only have work for a month, or maybe two months. But what about the four full months? You're busy the whole four months, and you're done threshing, extracting grain, and then boom, all of a sudden that's done, and then there's no break, there's no nothing. It's just boom. Let's go to the grapes now. And then the grapes, the, the grape season's done. It's not a two-week job. It's not a one-month job. It's a four-month job. And then all of a sudden, it's like, okay, the grapes are done. No rest, no nothing. Boom, let's plant for the next season. All this period of time, full cycles of production. I just say four months. You know, I, I just threw out an arbitrary number, but I don't know what the full amount of seasons is. But the concept is exactly the same. Full cycles of production. Something I have to say is there's no instant appearance of things. There's no like, you know, okay, uh, boom, the crop is right here. Boom, the, 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 the vintage is right here. The grape crop is right here. Boom, the grain is right here. Boom, the planting. It just, you know, it just appears. No, what you see here is that work is required. Work is required. The Lord doesn't say, okay, you know, boom, you're just going to have grain. It's just, you know, it's going to appear right here. Not to say that you can't. You have passages where, you know, we got done with the Gospels recently. And you see miracles happening. But what I love passages like this, what I love about them is that you see work is required. Remember Paul, what he says to the church in Thessalonica? Hey, if you don't work, you don't eat. If you don't work, you don't eat. What a strong message for the church today. If you don't work, you don't eat. That's what I love about these passages. And so all of a sudden, look what happens here. Still in verse 5. You shall eat your bread 
to the full and dwell in your land safely. Who doesn't want this? To eat bread, you know, have you ever had like a, you know, Thanksgiving meal and it's like, we got a full belly and you're like, oh, that was so delicious. And your belly is nice and full. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, you dwell in your land safety. It's like, who doesn't want this? And what I think is so powerful here is that you see the hand of God in these promises. You see the hand of God. If you have eyes to see. And we're going to see passages in the Old Testament that are so beautiful where you see obedience. A period of time where Israel is obedient unto the Lord and fearful unto the Lord. And then at the same time, when Israel starts to falter, maybe you have a wicked king or a wicked priest or priests or wicked high priest. You see like people, individuals, male, female, young and old. Where you see, whoa, the the Lord is using these people, prophets. Remember Amos? He says, I'm no prophet nor the son of the prophet. You know what the Lord says? Hey, Amos, you're a prophet. Because the Lord looks at the heart. He tests the mind. He tests the heart. He sees. And so, you know, look at verse 6. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts. So, you know, wild animals, no more. They're not around. Remember, there's many flocks here. You're going to have like little lambs running around. You know, all these flocks. You're going to have like, you know, a wolf come and grab the lamb. A lion come and, you know, eat the sheep. Or a bear come, you know, and, you know, grab a kid. Maybe a kid's playing with a little goat. And there's a bear there. It says, okay, you know, the goat can run too fast. But there's this, you know, kid there. Boom, I'm going to eat that kid. And you see in the Lord's hand here how he says, you know what? I'm going to rid the land of all these beasts, evil beasts. Translates as wild beasts. And the Lord says, I'm going to rid the land. It's going to be safe for you, Israel. Because you're my people. I am your God. And it's going to be safe for you. He goes further. And the sword will not go through your land. So you see, peace. No wars, no fighting. Peace. You know, from uh, these are things to aim for. When you think of like peace and safety and, you know, flock, uh, uh, flocks and, you know, uh, uh, crops and grain and planting and production. You know, these are all things to aim for. Politically speaking, you hear politicians. I don't care where you are in the world. But, well, you know, if you live in a, a, a you know, a, an area where they vote. <laughs> But politicians, they promise this, they promise that. But you know what? That's man. That's man. What we're looking at here are 100% the Lord. His promises. You know, in the, you hear, I mean, if you're an economist, you know the concept of the invisible hand from an economic standpoint. But this is the real invisible hand, which is visible if you have eyes to see. In verse 7, you will chase your enemies and they shall fall by the sword before you. So victorious in battle. Victorious in battle. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put 
10,000 to flight. These are unheard of ratios. I mean, imagine five guys chasing off 100. These are unheard of ratios. A hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Unheard of ratios. To the carnal. To the carnal. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. In verse 9. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. So remember, steady cycle of harvest. Steady. So remember verse 5, all the steady cycles. And verse 4, the land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And then here, you know, you have uh, in verse 10, the old harvest, clear out the old because of the new. You have these steady cycles and everything is plentiful. He says this in verse 11, I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. Now, you know, you say, okay, that's pretty neat for Israel. Oh, yeah, that's, that's good to go for Israel. If that's in your mind, let me tell you something. It's important for us as New Covenant believers. It's important for us to turn really quick to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. And look what happens here in verse 1. This is, you know... Revelation, you know, this is not even like, this is like the end of the last days. I mean, you think of the book of Revelation, it's the like last days. The vision that the Lord gave to uh, Brother John. But here in verse 1, it says, this is after the 70th week of Daniel. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. That's Zion. Zion. My friend, my beautiful, beautiful sister in Christ, my beautiful, beautiful brother in Christ, my beloved, this is our destination. This is our destination. New Jerusalem, Zion. And we get there by abiding in Christ and Christ in you. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying from heaven, and I, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Does that ring a bell? What do we just read in Leviticus? The exact same thing. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. You know when we're, we're reading Leviticus? Remember, always, always remember, it's a shadow of the things to come on earth as it is in heaven. And what do we see here in verse 3 of Revelation 21? Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be, will, will be, with, will be with them and be their God, paradise, paradise gained. We look at Genesis, paradise lost, Revelation, paradise gained. And how beautiful these promises of the Lord are as new covenant believers. 
Look at the prophetic implications. We're studying Leviticus. We look at here in Revelation 21. Look at the prophetic implications pointing to Zion. For you and for me. As new covenant believers. Let's go back to Leviticus now. In Leviticus Chapter 26, verse 11, I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Remember the Lord walking in the garden with Adam? Paradise lost. How it was lost. How the serpent entered and deceived. And what happened to Adam and Eve? You know, they were they covered themselves. They covered their nakedness. Now, you think, um, I have to say, it, when I say these things like nakedness, they cover their nakedness. If you're getting dirty thoughts in your mind when I say that, you need to repent. And I say that as lovingly as I possibly can. They cover their nakedness. When you're getting dirty thoughts in your mind, you need to repent for the works of your mind. And ask the Lord to cleanse your mind because He will. And what I love so much about, you know, these promises that we read in Holy Scripture is that it's assurance of the greater promise of paradise with the Lord. He shows us the way. Remember, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. You see verse 12, you see how the Lord desires intimacy. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Don't forget in Exodus 33, and I mention this every now and then, but the Lord just straight up said, he said, okay, you guys go to the promised land. I'm not going to be with you because you guys are uh, 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 stiff-necked people. I'm going to kill you guys. If I go with you guys, I'm going to kill you. Because of sin. Remember, he is holy. The Lord is holy. And so Moses intercedes. And then the Lord says, okay, I'll go with you. But here's what you have to do. There has to be blood. To atone for your sin. And when you hear the Lord say, abide in me and I in you. He is with you. He is in you. But it's not without blood. Life for life. You see, the fulfillment of the law. And that's what's so powerful about these passages in the law. Because we gain a greater understanding. A greater understanding. You know, as we study the law, look at this understanding that we've had so far, thus far. Studying the sacrifices, the offerings as new covenant believers, not to go back to the law, but to have a greater, I don't know, to say appreciation sounds kind of cheesy to say it that way, but to have a greater adoration for our Lord and the work on the cross for you because God loves you. Because God loves you. He says this in verse 13, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. So you see here freedom. 
Israel rescued out of Egypt, a straight-up rescue mission. They have freedom now. And through the law, remember our study in Romans on Sunday? Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so, yes, these are free people. They're out of Egypt. And now comes the law. Where is the knowledge of sin? Which reveals what? Bondage. You know? You're out of Egypt. I mean, let's go back in a time machine. You're out of Egypt. Wow, cool. We're free. But then through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then you realize, wait a second. I thought I was free. But I'm a slave to sin. What a great lesson that the Lord is teaching. The camp of Israel through the law which is a shadow of things to come, which is Jesus Christ, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but at the same time, a shadow of His nature and His character, which is what? Grace, mercy, and love. Freedom from sin. Freedom from bondage. Jesus Christ, who came to set the captives free. So you heard me say a little little while ago, you know, let's skip verse 3. Let's go back to verse 3 now. How beautiful these passages we read from verse 4 through verse 13. And now we look at verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, which translates as to do them. Remember, be hearers of the word and not doers of the word. Do not be hearers only, but be doers of the word. I'm not advocating the law. But we see these similar and the exact same concepts in the law. Because remember, God is the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. I never changed as the Lord. And then verse 1, you see a little word there. It says, then. Then. You see, God is reactionary. You do this, and I'll do this. God is reactionary. What is it that the people have to do in the Old Testament? If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then you see the Lord is reactionary. All these beautiful promises that we read. But the same thing applies for you and me today. If we, if you, if me, if we together walk in the statutes of our Lord, We walk and we keep and then we perform them. We do them. Not being hearers of the word only, but being doers of the word. You know what that requires? It requires you and me to yield to Him. Yield to the word of God and yield to the Holy Spirit. That's what's required. You say, oh, that sounds works-based. It's not works-based at all. Remember, works is a debt. We studied that a couple weeks ago in Romans. Works is a debt, as Paul explained, as Paul exemplified. I'm not talking about debt. I'm talking about obedience. And so now, let's look at verse 14. We're going to flip the coin over. Remember, every token has two sides. So, you know, this is a good side. You see verse, you know, verse 3 through 13. It's like, wow, this is beautiful. I like this side. That's a nice token. 
Well, let's flip that token over now. But, the Lord says in verse 14, But, if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul... Hold on a second. Or if your soul... Wait a minute. Soul? God's concerned about the inner man? God's concerned about the inner woman? He's concerned about the heart? He's concerned about the mind? Absolutely. Absolutely. Verse 14 says, If you do not obey, verse 15, if you despise my statutes, and then the soul is injected here. Or if your soul abhors my judgment or my law so that you do not perform all my commandments or do all my commandments, but break my covenant. So, Verse 14 and verse 15, the people do. What do they do? They do not obey the Lord. They do not observe His commandments. They despise His statutes. The soul abhors His judgments or His law. They do not do all the Lord's commandments but break the covenant. That's what the people do. Now we're going to see what God does. Verse 16, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you. Let's pause here for a moment. I will even appoint terror over you. Now, I have to say something to the Calvinist. If you're into Reformed theory, I call it, people call it Reformed theology. I call it Reformed theory because it's just a theory. If that's you, you know, uh, people always say, oh, God has mercy on whom he has mercy. He's, God is sovereign. You don't know his ways. God is sovereign. So he's appointing terror here. But when you read verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then you see the Lord is reactionary and how beautiful it is to see these beautiful promises of the Lord. But then at the same time, don't forget verse 14 and 15. If you do not obey, if you do not observe, if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgment, you do not perform my commandments, but break my covenant. What is revealed? A person's choice is revealed. Choice. To either be obedient or to be disobedient. And that's the great fork. Do you go left or do you go right? Do you disobey or do you obey? Old Testament, the same concept is palpable as New Covenant believers in the New Testament. The exact same concept is palpable. You see, God's actions are really, in actuality, their reactions because the person has to make their choice. Just like in Romans 1, they neither retained God nor were they thankful. And so that was the action. And what was the reaction God gave them over? We studied that in Romans 1. Remember, God is the same. And I think it's so beautiful when we understand the nature and character of our Lord. Even in the hard stuff. Even when it's difficult. 
I mean, you read verse 3 through 13 and you love it. If you're like me, it's like, wow, I love this. I want this for me. I want this for my family. I want this for my friends. I want this for everybody. I want this for the church. I want this for the bride of Christ. I want this for the little lambs. I want this for the sheep. Lord, let it be. But then at the same time, understand that the Lord is reactionary. Choices need to be made. And so when people choose disobedience, the Lord says this in verse 16, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. You know, it's forgetting God. You know, verse 1, you shall not make idols. This is... This is what happens when God is forgotten. And I have to tell you that forgetting God always results in ruin. Always. We're going to read about it more in the Old Testament. We're going to see it in the New Testament. You see even more of it in the New Testament. And we've already seen it in the book of Acts. In our study through the book of Acts. And maybe you've seen it in the church. When the Lord has become forgotten. And it breaks your heart. You know, you're in good company. You know why? Because it breaks the Lord's heart. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. The Lord's heart is broken when that happens. Don't let it happen to you, my friend. Make your call and election sure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I don't say that to instill fear in you. Not too much. But I do say that to urge you to fear the Lord. You have the, you know, I can't instill fear in you. But I can urge you that and tell you that my desire is that you fear the Lord. That's my desire. You love the Lord and you fear the Lord. The two work together in tandem with one another. And so look what happens here. In, still in verse 16 at the end. And you, shall sh sh and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. You know, if you have a mindset that, you know, I work in vain, I work in vain, I work in vain. It's pointless for me to work like this. You know, all my work is all in vain. Think of what can happen in your heart if you have such a mentality. Bitterness. Bitterness. And if that's you, maybe I'm going to throw out a, a, a possibility. Maybe God has forgotten. In your life, maybe the Lord has become forgotten. Oh, no, no, that's not me. Look, I go to church. I read my Bible. Okay, that's fine. But maybe his precepts are aboard in your soul. I'm not talking about outward appearance. I'm not talking about in outward appearance you go to church. In outward appearance I can see you open your Bible. In outward appearance, you know, whatever. I'm not talking about the appearance of holiness. The semblance of holiness. I'm talking about straight up holiness. What's happening in your soul in your heart, in your mind, the inner man, the inner woman. 
That's what I'm talking about. This is what he says in verse 17. I will set my face against you and you shall and you shall be defeated by your enemies. These are scary. I have to tell you, these verses that we're looking at, these are terrifying verses. But they're also, also reactionary verses. And that's a result of disobedience. Verse 14 and verse 15. That's a result of disobedience. And so... Let's continue. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And after all this, if you do not obey me, you know, if you just pause here for a moment, you know, I say pause here for a moment, but you know what I love about verse 18? Even the Lord takes a pause. After all this, if you do not obey me, so he takes a pause, he allows time for repentance, and it's like, okay, there's no repentance. Now look what he says. Then I will punish you. You see? Reactionary. The Lord is reactionary. Then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. Pause here in verse 19. That's a heavy statement. I will break the pride of your power. I tell you from experience, humility is always better. Always. Because I've been broken by the Lord. And at the time, I hated it. Today, looking back, it was the most beautiful thing. Look at Pharaoh. Look at Nebuchadnezzar. Both were very prideful men. And both the Lord gave warnings to. One refused to humble himself. And one was humbled. That's Nebuchadnezzar. Now look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. Be very careful with the pride of life, my friend. Humility is always better. Always Choose humility. Remember, the meek shall inherit the earth. Choose humility. He says, I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Now, from a practical sense, if you've ever been in like, um, I don't know, like a, a cold freezer, like, you know, a walk-in freezer, tin you got the metal all around you it's cold inside it you know metal is an accentuator of either hot or cold think about what those seasons would be like from a practical sense what happens to the rain where's the rain what happens to the soil what about our produce what about our land what about our harvest and this is a result Remember, the Lord is reactionary. What happens with disobedience? And it breaks my heart because we're going to see this. We're going to read through the Old Testament and it's going to break your heart as you're reading like Israel. What are you doing? Eli, the high priest, what are you doing? You see, even David, David, no, what are you doing? And it's going to break your heart. 
because we have this base plate of the law. It's going to break your heart. I pray it does. I pray that you have a soft heart. And what's so beautiful, know, my friend, that you're in good company because the Lord's heart is breaking, has been broken through all these things. Remember, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So when you read these passages, this was just like a couple days ago. You know, I'm terrible at math, so a couple days ago. But you read these Old, Old Testament passages, it's like, man, it, it's so fresh. I mean, have you ever had somebody break your heart? And like, it was 10 years ago, it's forgotten. You know, if you're old like me, and somebody says, oh, I'm sorry, I, didn't, I don't even know what you're talking about. I forgot all about it. But what about when it's a day old, two days old, and it's fresh? Think about the heart of the Lord. When a day for Him is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. Think about how fresh his long-suffering is. And you're in good company when your heart long-suffers for the lost. When your heart long-suffers at error and backslidden and apostasy, a defection from truth. When your heart aches, you're in good company. You're in good company. Look what happens here. In verse uh, 20. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. So starvation starts to set in. You know, today we have government as Savior, lowercase s. Today we have government. Oh, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Feed me, government. But if that's you, maybe God is trying to get your attention through your tummy. Maybe God is trying to get your attention. He does it in the Old Testament. Oh, that's the law. That's the law. That's the Old Testament. Well, don't forget that there's the book of Revelation. And all these things will happen again as the Lord makes himself known. They'll happen again. In verse 21, it says here, Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, notice a choice is made, not willing to obey me. You know, you have people who say, Oh yeah, God is a fairy tale. God is a fairy tale. Well, you see, pride is not broken. Look at Pharaoh who refused to humble himself. And their pride is not, his pride wasn't broken. And you see it today among the prideful. What is it that the Lord does in the life of a man, in the life of a woman who are prideful? And what he does to bring them to a place of humility. Not out of hatred. But it's going to happen. You're going to see it in the book of Revelation. You know, people refuse to repent. You know, refuse to repent, refuse to repent. And then finally they acknowledge the Lord. Because they're so freaked out at the plagues that are happening. Just like in the camp of, or in, in Egypt. In Egypt, what do you see? Like the plague, the, 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 uh, the water became blood. 
And everybody's kind of like laughing. Okay, yeah, you know, look, Pharaoh, we can do this too. The magicians of Egypt, you know, Janice and Jambres. Hey, look, we can do this too. So it's no big deal. Uh, God of Israel, he's nothing. And it pains me to say that, but for sake of argument, I speak as a man. I tell you these things to help you understand. And in the course of time, plague after plague, the watered blood, the frogs, the hail, all these things happen. And then finally, the, the wise men of Egypt were pleading with Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the God of Israel is stronger than our God. Let the people go. Let them go. But Pharaoh refused to harden his heart. The same exact thing is going to happen in the revelation as the event, the plagues of revelation befall the earth. In the, during the 70th week of Daniel. The same exact thing. People will refuse to humble themselves and refuse Jesus Christ. But in the course of time, something will happen, plague after plague after plague. And then finally, just as the wise men of Israel, there's going to be the wise men of the earth who say, Lord, you are, you know, Jesus, you are Lord. how beautiful it is when the Lord makes himself known for the sake of the lost because he is long suffering not willing that any should perish you say wait a second but people are perishing people are perishing well I'm not talking about the first death I'm talking about the second death he doesn't desire anybody to be under the second death he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked that's what the Word of God says. And so all of a sudden, look what happens here. In verse um, 21 still, and not willing, if you're, if, 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 then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sin. Now, if you're a Calvinist, if you're a Calvinist, God has mercy on whom he has mercy. You know, Jacob he loved and Esau he hated. You know, these are all biblical truths, but in context, what is revealed? Don't forget that Esau was, you know, a fornicator, a lying fornicator. Mercy is conditional. Yeah, he has mercy on whom he has mercy, but don't forget that mercy is conditional. You say, what do you mean mercy is conditional? Well, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 verse 6 says that mercy is showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So what do we see? Mercy is conditional. Have you ever talked with a Calvinist? Have you ever talked with those in Reformed theory? Oh yeah, God is sovereign, God is sovereign. I'm not mocking His sovereignty, He is indeed sovereign. But in his sovereignty, he presents a choice to people, which is what? Honor him. Honor him. Obey his commandments. And when that happens, mercy is shown to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's uh, Exodus 20, verse 6. Mercy is conditional. It's very important God is reactionary. Reactionary. 
If you're a Calvinist and Reformed theory person, I love you. I don't want to hurt you. I'm not trying to be offensive. But sometimes, a lot of times, the truth of God's holy word is very offensive. Because we're being confronted with it. And we have a choice to make. Look what happens here in verse 22. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and, in number, and your highways shall be desolate. So wild animals were removed in verse 6. Remember, the wild animals were removed, the blessing of the Lord. And here in verse 22, they return. I'm going to tell you something. I, before I say this, I have to tell you, dear listener, love you with all my heart. I have no idea who you are. The large majority of listeners, I have no idea who you are. But I love you. And I pray for you. And I tell you this. Past blessings are the past. You must remember that. Past blessings are the past. And today's choices will determine your future blessings. And I say that for a reason. Because what I see in the church today is a lot of people rest their laurels on past blessings. Even when they're in a state of disobedience unto the Lord. Biblically, that cannot happen. Yes, the blessings of the Lord are beautiful. But if it's in the past, it's in the past. The choices that you make today, the choices that I make today, will determine future blessings. And I say that not to scare you, not to be mean, you know, not to hurt your feelings, not to be offensive. I say that because I love you. And I say that to encourage you to run your race to the end, to your last breath. You say, wait a second, death by beast? Verse 21, he says, uh, I, I will send wild beasts among you which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number. Oh, that's just for the Old Testament. That's not for the church today. Really? Yes, it's Old Testament. But let's turn to Revelation chapter 6 really quick, which, by the way, is in the New Testament. I don't say that to be froggy with you, but I get the argument a lot. Oh, that's Old Testament stuff. That's not for us today. Really? Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him, and power was given them, given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Animals killing people. It's one of the signs of the last days. You know, it's going to happen. It's one of the plagues, one of the events of the last days that the Lord is going to use to rock people's world. To rock their world so that people can repent. Because that's what He desires. See, in, in Revelation chapter 9, verse 20, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. In verse 21, and they did not repent. But then what do we see in Revelation chapter 11, verse 
13, the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. You see, just like the wise men of Egypt. And in this world, we have the, the wise guys of the world, people who are wise in the ways of the world, wise in their own eyes, which are merely opinion. And the Lord will use these events of the last days, use these plagues of the last days to rock their world. So that they can repent. Because remember, he's long-suffering. Not willing that any should perish. How beautiful it is to study these passages in the law. And as new covenant believers, be exhorted, be warned, and be shown these things and how applicable they are for us today as new covenant believers. Not going back to the law. Very important to understand, not going back to the law. But seeing the character and nature of our Lord exactly the same throughout time. Because He never changes. Thus fulfilling what the prophet Malachi wrote. I never change, says the Lord. He says this, going back to Leviticus. Verse 23. And if by these things you are not reformed by me. So let me tell you, you hear me rail against reform theory because it is reform theory. But biblically speaking, that biblical reformed theology is to be several things. To be reformed in the Lord is to be taught, is to be chastised, is to be corrected and to be instructed that's how this word translates in the Hebrew. This is biblical reformation. This is, this is biblical reformed theology. Not the carnal reformed theory. Not reformed theory in accordance to the flesh. But reformed theology in accordance to the spirit. If by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I also, notice, God is reactionary. You do this, I'm going to do this. If you do this and it's good, you're obedient, then I'm going to do this. Blessings. If you do this and it's bad, disobedience, then I'm going to do this. It's a curse. God is reactionary. Just like we read in Romans 1, God is reactionary. Since we know that God is reactionary, what is the clarion call of God? Old Testament and New Testament. Repent, 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 repent. And I will never, ever, ever get tired of telling that to you. Repent and be alive and be born again. Let's look what happens here. In verse 24. This is God's reaction. If you're not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. All these times. Verse 18, seven times more for your sins. Verse 21, seven times more plagues according to your sins. Verse 24, seven times for your sins. See? Reactionary. A choice is made. Sin, the choice is sin, God reacts. We're living in the age of grace. You sin, 
And the Lord says, repent. Repent. Verse 25, and I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. Now, this is the old covenant. The new covenant has an execution of vengeance as well. It's the last days. The 70th week of Daniel. Events that happen during the 70th week of Daniel. The first half looks one way. The second half looks a completely different way. The new covenant has an execution of vengeance. Just as the Old Testament. He says this in verse 25. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you. You see, the same plagues as the last days. Pestilence. And you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven. That's not a lot of bread for ten women to bake. And you think like ten women, maybe, you know, two in each oven. If there were, you know, seven more ovens, maybe one oven for each. But no, ten women shall bake bread in one, break your bread in one oven. Bake your bread in one oven. That's not a lot of bread. And they shall bring back, back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. Wow, can you imagine? You know, you eat them. Have you ever had that situation before in your life? Maybe you're poor, and you eat a meal, and you're done eating, and you're still hungry. You're still hungry. You ever talk to old people, and they tell you stories of like their childhood when they were growing up during the Great Depression with ketchup soup? Having bread was a luxury. And if there was bread, you'd have to break it up and share it between five people. You'd take a little bit of ketchup, put a little bit of ketchup in a bowl, and a little bit of ketchup, and then you add a little bit of water, make ketchup soup, and that's your dinner for tonight. Ketchup soup. And as a luxury, you know, a little piece of bread. Ketchup soup. You talk to old people, there's this commercial going on TV about starving kids. And I'm, not, I'm not saying anything negative about starving kids, but just to offer some perspective. A commercial on TV about starving kids. And the kid opens the fridge and you see like, you know, all kinds of... You know, the commercial is to say, you know, how sad it is that the kid is poor and he doesn't have food. And, you know, I get what they're saying. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing, but I get what they're saying. But the kid opens the fridge and you see like a jar of pickles, you see like mayonnaise, mustard, ketchup, you know, whatever, you know, little tiny, kind of like an empty fridge, but there's still stuff in there. And then he goes to the pantry, opens the pantry and he's got like all kinds of, I mean, like one could look at it and be like, wow, that's a pretty scant pantry. But sit down and watch that commercial with an old person who maybe, you know, they were raised you know, in the aftermath of the Great Depression when the country pulled out. I live in the United States. When I say the country, I'm speaking of the United States. When the country was pulling out of the Great Depression. Sit down next to an old person and watch that commercial. Commercial. You know, the kid goes in, opens the, 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 the fridge, and the old person says, wow, that's like a feast. You know, you could have like ketchup soup for weeks. You could have mustard soup for weeks. You have enough to last you a year. 
ketchup soup, mustard soup, mayonnaise soup. And the kid goes to the pantry, and the old guy is like passing out, like, oh my goodness. It's like a feast in there. And I only say this to offer perspective. What is it that the Lord shows us through these things that happen in life? These events that happen in life. These stations that we have in life. What is it that the Lord puts in my life and your life to rock our world? To jolt us and say, wait a second. Your way is wrong. My way is right. And you need to choose my way. The Lord said it to me. Revealing my own fallen nature to me. The same way he does it with you. And if you're in Christ, praise be to the Lord. Abide in Christ. Go and sin no more. It's not to be sinless. That won't happen. We're in this world. We're in these earth suits. It's not to be sinless. But each day we can sin less and less and less and less. And move on to perfection. And so, let's go back to... um, Verse 27, and after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, notice God's reaction here, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. See, your sins. Verse 18, seven times for your sins. And verse 21, seven times for According to your sins, verse 24, seven times for your sins. What do we see in verse 28? Seven times for your sins. God's reaction to what? The people's choice. The fork in the road, this great fork in the road that each and every one of us from the very beginning of time has this fork. Lord, do I honor you or do I dishonor you? Lord, do I obey you or do I disobey you? And you have the choice to make. Many times, many times in a day you have a choice to make. The same way many times in a day I have a choice to make. Lord, do I bring you honor or do I bring you dishonor? Do I obey you or do I disobey you? He says this in verse 29. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. So the hungry people, they start dying. And then they start eating the dead. And this happens. This happens. And we're going to read about it in our future studies in the Old Testament. We're going to read about it. People eating people. Eating children. Through starvation. And we're going to reflect back on Leviticus. We're going to reflect back on these passages. And know and see that God has become forgotten. And when we get to those passages, that's what happens when God is forgotten. He says this in verse 30. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. Bingo. What happens here? Idolatry of your idols. 
So idolatry has entered now. That's what happens when God is forgotten. Idolatry. You know, you go to church, you're on fire for the Lord. And then all of a sudden, I have to tell you something. When churches open up again, I don't know when that's going to be. But when the government, you know, the restrictions on churches are loosened and things return to some semblance of normalcy. I don't think the church will ever be the same. I really don't. And I hate to say that. I wish it weren't the case. I hope it's not the case. But I don't think the church is going to be the same. Because in this so-called lull, I'll call it a lull, but in this lull, what has happened in the body of Christ? What has happened? You know, maybe, you know, what, what does, what are homes like? Before, you know, Sunday would come, people would go to church, hear the word. You know, maybe they have a midweek Bible study, hear the word. But when churches are closed, where do they go? Where do they go? I pray they, you know, they, they, they go online, listen to the online sermons. I hope they do. Pastors who, you know, they have their online sermons. Pray for the pastors. Pray for the elders. Because there's some major decisions that need to be made. You know, people not going to church. People don't go to church, so they're not tithing. They're not made the offerings. The offering plate has been empty for week after week after week after week after week. The church has bills to pay. You know, rent, they got a mortgage to pay, and then all of a sudden they can't pay it. And what happens? The church becomes a little, you know, uh, 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 whatever, it gets bought out by whoever. They tear it down, build a shopping complex there, whatever. Business. I mean, I get it. I'm not saying I like it. But that's what happens. I really don't think the church is going to be the same in the aftermath of COVID. I really don't think. That will be the same as, as the body. But that's what happens. It's the nature of man in these earth suits of ours. Look at the disciples of Christ. When Jesus Christ says, hey, you'll stay here and pray. And he comes back, what happens? They're sleeping. And that was the so-called hardcore people. Because remember, there's like all the disciples were there, and then except Judas. And then he, take a, uh, he takes a couple more. And then all of a sudden he takes a couple more and says, okay, wait here, pray. He comes back. They're sleeping. It happened several times. Now, granted, you know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a pending thing. It was going to happen, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But this possibility still exists in the body of Christ, slumbering in a time where slumbering becomes dangerous. To slumber is a dangerous thing for the Christian at any, in any generation. 
but even more so for the last days. To slumber is dangerous. For a pastor to slumber, it's highly dangerous. For a husband to slumber, highly dangerous. For a wife, mother to slumber, it's highly dangerous. For the children, for their own walk, but then also for the children. For anybody Think of the idolatry that has entered into the church in this lull, in this time period where, you know, uh, churches have been not meeting. The assembly of the saints hasn't been what it used to. What is it that idolatry, what form of idolatry has entered now the church? I mean, it was bad before, but what about now? And I pray it's not the case, but... I call it like I see it. I hate to say that. But I call it like I see it. That's what I've seen. You know, you, you, you catch up with another Christian. It's like, you know, you're a Christian you haven't met and you haven't seen in a while. It's like, whoa, you're different, brother. You're different. What happened? Well, I haven't been to church in a while, so, you know, I'm not reading my Bible. Whoa, whoa. Get in the Word. You need the Word. It's kind of like a knife that cuts both ways because you can see the danger in idolatry seeping in, but then you can also see the beauty of the remnant becoming refined, which aligns with the prophecies. Refinement. And so look what happens here. Idolatry has entered, and this is a result of God being forgotten. He says this in verse 30 at the end, and my soul shall abhor you. This is all reactionary. The Lord's reaction of the people's decision. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. Nothing new under the sun. I will bring your sanctuaries to desolation and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. Remember how many times in Leviticus in the earlier chapters when you know you see the sweet aroma unto the Lord. And I even made the challenge for you to start thinking of your life as an aroma to the Lord. And I asked a question of you. What aroma do you want to present to the Lord? Do you want to be a stink or do you want to be a beautiful aroma to the Lord? When God is forgotten, it becomes a stench. The aroma becomes a stench and the aroma becomes rejected. That's what happens when the Lord is forgotten. And God can't be fooled. He can't be fooled. I think it's very interesting as we see these things. You know, like in verse 18, seven times more for your sin, I will break the pride of your of your power. In, in verse 21, seven times more plagues. And in verse 24, seven times, uh, seven times for your sins. And in verse 28, seven times for your sins. In verse 31, what is revealed? They're still presenting sweet aroma to the Lord. There's all the, it's like sin, but they're still presenting what, 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 like what's happening. The whole purpose of the law, it wasn't about the, the functionality of the law in terms of like, you know, like a robot, you know, you do this, you do this, you do this is deeper. It's much deeper. Remember the Lord says in the law, you know, it's the people who are willing. 
don't compel anybody to do this. It's the people who are willing. That people have to make a choice. So what happens when the Lord becomes forgotten? Religion. When the Lord becomes forgotten? Tradition. And that's what we're going to see in future chapters. Just like with Eli and his sons. Yeah, you have a priest. Yeah, they're doing the, so, the functions. I'm doing my air quotes now. They're doing the functions of the law. But what is their heart? Wicked. Wicked. Look at the high priests in, the, in our study in the New Testament. Look at the priests and the high priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes. Supposed advocates of the law, except they're blind and deaf to the law. You see? What do they do to the messengers of righteousness? Peter, Paul, Stephen. What do they do to the messengers? Look at the early church. Historically speaking, look at the early church. Remember, when they hate you, remember that they hated our Lord first. And a slave is not greater than his master. A slave is not greater than her master. The Lord says here in verse 31, I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aroma. So you start to see, wow, it's turned into a tradition. The law became a tradition. The law became a religion. Now you understand why the Lord in Matthew 23, when he has a heavy, heavy indictment upon the religious leaders, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, woe to you. That's what he says. He says this in verse 32, I will bring the land to desolation and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. Blessings became a curse when God has forgotten I mean, remember the first several verses we read from verse uh, 3 to 13. Like, wow, how beautiful. Wow, it's, it's, it's awesome. I love this. Blessings of the Lord, how beautiful it is. But then now all of a sudden, verse 32, the land is desolate. And the enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished. You see the blessings that God gave to Israel, they become a curse. These are things that we're going to see in future chapters, future books. We're going to see this exact same thing. And in the, you know, the neighboring peoples, everybody, wait a second, are, are these the people that were rescued out of Egypt? Are these the people that the Lord destroyed, you know, their God destroyed Egypt. The chariots of Egypt, are these them? Wow, their city is desolate. That's what happens when the Lord is shamed, when the Lord is given, is uh, the name of the Lord. When a person, when a people shame the name of the Lord. But you also see it today. When a person brings shame upon the name of Jesus Christ. And I hate to say this, but as a pastor, you see it among pastors. Pastors who do dirty things 
with the lambs and with the sheep of God. Pastors who are involved with filthy things, idols, drugs and sex and alcohol, dirty, dirty things. And the name of the Lord is shamed. People say, people look at that and be like, well, you know, you see it on the news. Oh, this pastor did this. This youth leader did this. This person, this elder in this church did this. And shame is brought to the Lord. People say, oh, don't talk about it. Let's not go public with it because it's going to bring shame to the church. You know, who cares about the building? Who cares about the, who cares about your title, your position, you know, your salary, your this? What about the name of Jesus Christ? And shame is brought to his name. And then you have the world who witnesses these things. Says, wow, if that's Christianity, I don't want that. I thought God is supposed to love me. And you know, I bring my kid to this youth group and you're going to rape her. You're going to molest my son. You're going to molest my daughter. I thought you were supposed to show the love of Christ. And you know what? The world who says that, they have every right to say that. Every right to say that because shame was brought to the name of the Lord by a decision that was made, a choice that was made. You see? Now look what the Lord is saying here in verse 32. He says, I will bring the land to desolation and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished. Like, wow. Think of Israel's neighbors. Are these God's people? What about the world today when they see, you know, disgusting evil things in the church, disgusting evil things in, among the leadership and pastors and elders? You see? In verse 33, I will scatter you among the nations and draw, draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Remember, as New Covenant believers... Judgment comes first in the house of God. Judgment comes first in the house of God. So when you hear me speak of a remnant, how adequate for the times that we're in. In verse 34, Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. Sabbaths. You see? Now, if you're an environmentalist, I have to tell you something. If you're like, you know, a tree hugger, you like the green movement and all these things, I got to tell you, God desires Sabbath on the land. I, I get where you're coming from. Here in verse 34, the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. You have this certain commonality with the Lord, but I have to tell you something. There's much more. There's much more. God loves you. You know, you're a tree hugger. You love the green movement and all these things. I don't hate you. But creation has a creator. And he loves you. Look at verse 35. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. 
And as for those of you who are left, I will say. So look at all the, these forms of judgment. The Lord as reactionary, these forms of judgment that come upon a people that have forgotten him. And this is a hard warning for Israel. A hard warning. In verse 36, And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness, I will send fear, is how it translates into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. So, you know, if you're Calvinist, you know, I know it sounds like I'm picking on Calvinists a lot, you know, and to a certain degree, I'm not picking, but, you know, I just want to expand your thinking in accordance with the Word of God. You know, God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign. I'm not mocking His sovereignty. He is indeed sovereign. But even here, again, God is reactionary. Oh, but God has mercy on whom He has mercy. Yeah, you're right. He does. But don't forget that in in accordance with Exodus 20, verse 6, that mercy is reactionary to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's what the Lord says. That's what the Lord says. Oh, but Jacob he loved and Esau he hated. Yeah, I know. But in Hebrews 12, verse 16, he was a, 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 a fornicator and profane person. You see? Fornicator and profane. So Esau made his choice. Esau made his choice. Remember, mercy is conditional to those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, that was an Esau. And the Lord reacted. So if you're a Calvinist, if you're a Reformed theorist, I love you. But I have to tell you these things so that you can see the truth of God's holy word. Because what I'm seeing now amongst the Reformed theorists, amongst the Calvinists, amongst even mainline uh, uh, Presbyterianism, is that you have these so-called pastors who are telling their churches that it is entirely okay to take the mark of the beast. Direct contradiction of Holy Scripture. They're teaching, it's okay to take the mark of the beast, you'll still be saved. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. That's a lie. You cannot believe it, nor must you, but you mustn't believe that. I don't care who your pastor is, so-called pastor. I don't care. So let's look what happens here. In verse uh, 36, in the middle, the sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword. When no one pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. This is what happens when God becomes forgotten. In the Old Testament, you have no power to stand before your enemies. But even in the New Testament, as New Covenant believers, what do you see? No power. You see the book of Acts? No power. Not with everybody. But you see some with no power. Just like the sons of Siva. No power. Simon, 
no power. And you have these messengers that the Lord uses to speak about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, the helper. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is alive and well today. The question is, will you yield to Him? In verse 38, you shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up and those of you who are left. So verse 36, as for those of you who are left and in verse 39, and those of you who are left. So it's smaller than verse 36. As if verse 36 was small enough, now it's even smaller. And those of you who are left shall waste away, which translates as to melt, to rot, and to vanish shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemy's land. It's very interesting in their iniquity, how it's stated here, their iniquity. And it reminds me a lot about kids. Kids who waste away as a result of another's iniquity. You know who I'm speaking about? The parents. Dear old dad, dear old mom. You're in iniquity. If you're a mom, if you're a dad, you're in iniquity. You're in sin. And you're raising up kids. Look at what you're teaching your kids. Look at what you're showing your kids. You know, you're a mom, you're a dad, and you're also a crackhead. You're a sex addict. You're, you know, doing your drugs, your alcohol, all these things. Look at what you're showing your kids. Oh, yeah, I was a Christian once when I was a kid. I made an altar call when I was 15 years old, and I was taught once saved, always saved, so I'm good to go. I'm going to be a crackhead, and you know what? I'll see Jesus Christ. I'm going to beat on my wife, cheat on my wife, and I'll be in heaven with you. Once saved, always saved. That's what my, that's what my pastor told me. He even told me that, you know, if I don't make the rapture, I can take the mark of the beast, and I'll still be okay. Woe to that pastor. W-O-E. Woe to that pastor. So-called pastor. I call him a wolf. You see? Kids. And I've seen it. And it breaks my heart. You ever talk to a little five-year-old kid? Talk to a five-year-old You know, it's so beautiful to talk to a five-year-old. About things of faith. Even more so than a 30-year-old guy. A 35-year-old gal. It's better to talk with a little 5-year-old. You know why? Because, you know, they're freshly made. You know, they're, they're closer to being formed in their mother's womb. It's it, all they're forming. It's fresh. They haven't been corrupted by the world. You talk to a little one about things of faith and wow, their eyes are huge like saucers. You talk to them about God. You talk to them about heaven. You talk to them about paradise. They're like, whoa, are you serious? Maybe not five, maybe like six, seven. I talk with a little kid. And it's so beautiful. But then, you know, you talk with a 30-year-old and they make fun of you. And you know what the saddest thing is? It's like you talk to a kid about things of faith and it's so beautiful to see and the kid becomes 10, 12, 15 and then all of a sudden they start to hate you. Ah, you're just full of it. You know, you're telling me all these lies. That's just a fairy tale. And then come to discover it's their parents who who killed that seed. 
and it will break your heart. People tell me, you're too harsh, you're too harsh. Really? Is it not God's reaction that is harsh? And don't forget, he's reactionary. Which points back to you. Is not your action harsh? Not unto me, unto the Lord. And that's what happens when God is forgotten. Old Testament, we're going to see it. But it's alive and well as new covenant believers, the Lord became, becomes forgotten. And you see it. You see the fruit of it. You see the rot of it. You see the destruction. You see the wasting away. Look what happens here. And still in verse 39. Also in their father's iniquities, which are with them, they, they shall waste away. So children can waste away because of dumb dads and dumb moms. It happens. We see it. You, you don't need me to tell you. You see it. I have to say something. If you're a young kid and you're listening and these words that I say, maybe they resonate with you. And you know, you have parents that are lacking in accordance with the word of God. Above your parents, honor your Father in heaven and honor His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. He loves you. God loves you. I've talked to kids before and they have, you know, dumb parents. You know, oh, that's why you call their parents dumb. Well, they make stupid decisions. They're stupid. They're foolish. They're simpletons. The, the Bible says it. Fools. I've talked to young kids. Hey, your mom is a fool. Your dad is a fool. You know, I don't say that when they're kids, but when they're older, you're a victim. You're a victim. And if you're a kid, you know it. Sometimes, you know, kids, kids are smart. Kids are very smart, especially like in the church, you know. Have you ever seen a kid say, hey, dad, we shouldn't be doing this. Hey, mom, you shouldn't say that. Beautiful, beautiful children who are spiritual heavyweights more so than their parents. But if you're a kid and you hear this, I want you to understand that the Lord sees. He knows your station. He knows where you're at, right where you're at. He knows. And He loves you. And even still, you have a choice to make, and that is to honor Him. Honor the Lord. You don't have to get in fights and arguments with your parents. Respect them. Because it is pleasing unto the Lord. Because, you know, being the spiritual leader in your home, because your dad, your mom has abdicated that responsibility, you can show them Jesus Christ. You can show them God's love, grace, and His mercy. You can have compassion. I say they're fools. And the Bible says they're fools. And you might see them. Yeah, you know, they made some foolish choices. And I don't say it that way to be mean. But I say it to jolt you and wake you up and understand that the Lord sees it too. The Lord knows. 
sit still. Honor him. Knowing what tribulation produces, just like we studied on Sunday. What is it that tribulation produces? I say what we studied on Sunday. But I'll read. That in Romans 5, Romans 5, verse 3, says we also glory or rejoice in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Now, if you're a little one and you have foolish parents, you know, a drunk dad, you know, a mom who's going out and seeing other guys, and you know, it's like, wow, you know, this is terrible, this is terrible, and yes, it is terrible. Your parents are not showing you Jesus Christ. And I pray that they repent because the Lord gives them an alternative about a millstone and it's not good. It is not good at all. But understand that you, my precious little one, this tribulation that you're experiencing, what it produces inside, what the Lord does inside, Produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. I tell you the truth. Some of the most God-fearing men that I have ever known in my life have gone through tremendous tribulation. Tremendous hardship. And so you're in good company. I say this to encourage you. Remember, there's light at the end of every tunnel. And the Lord sees. Honor Him. It kills me that you see parents like this. In the church, the world is the world. I mean, it still breaks my heart when you see kids in the world like that. But I'm talking about the church. This is what things that you see in the church. Pastors who are heavy-handed with their wives. Pastors who are heavy-handed with their kids. You see this? Lording over them when the Lord never even does that to the pastor, to the guy. And yet they do that to their spouses. They do that to their kids. There's light at the end of every tunnel. Let's look at verse 40 because now we're going to see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know what's so interesting? How beautiful, verse 3 through 13. It's like, wow, these are so beautiful. Then you read verse 14 through 39. You're like, okay, whoa, Lord, that's hardcore. It's a fork. Leviticus 26, we're presented with a fork. You choose which way you want to go. There's a good way, a better way, the best way. His name is Jesus Christ, to walk with him. Look at verse 40. But, I love the buts in the Bible. You know, if, you, if your mind goes in crazy town when I say that, you know, repent because your mind's in dirty town. But I love the buts in the Bible because it's like you read these passages, it's like, whoa, that's hardcore. And then you see the but, but God, or but this, but that. And here's one of them. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. No, remember, that's God's reaction. 
if their uncircumcised hearts, pause there for a moment, uncircumcised hearts, does that ring a bell? This is a new covenant teaching, the uncircumcised heart in the law. To a people of the circumcision in accordance to the law. And in the law, in Leviticus 26, verse 41, is a passage about an uncircumcised heart. Whoa. A shadow of the things to come. A people of the circumcision. But the real circumcision, the circumcision of heart. We just studied that in the book of Romans. Here in verse 41, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt. No blame game. You see that a lot, the blame game. You know, oh, but this guy did this. Oh, but this. You know what my biggest pet peeve is? Daddy issues. Everybody says daddy, especially men. I don't call them. You know, they look like men, but they're boys. Daddy issues. Oh, you know, I cheated on my wife because, you know, when I was five, my dad didn't play catch with me. Oh, you know, I, I beat up my wife and, you know, I have five girlfriends because when I was a kid, my dad didn't throw the football with me. He never taught me how to play baseball. Daddy issues. They blame daddy. Refusing to accept their guilt. It's very common with men, so-called men. Which I call boys. I don't care how buff you are. I don't care if you've got a big old hairy chest. I don't care how big your muscles are. If that's you, you're a little boy. And I don't say that to hurt your feelings. But it's true. I also say it to encourage you and urge you to cut it out. Grow up. Put on your big boy pants. Be a man. Be a man. It's very beautiful to accept guilt. Very beautiful. Because do you know what the Lord does? The acknowledgement of sin, the acknowledgement of guilt. When you come to the throne of grace, remember, He's not cruel. He's not mean. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. You, you acknowledge your sin. You repent. You're at the throne of grace. And you know what He does? He fixes you. He gives you restoration of mind, restoration of heart. And in the course of time, something happens. You're different. You're different. People, like, they find out, like, you know, wow. What? That was you? No way. And you know what you say? It was the Lord. This is the handiwork of the Lord. And you become, you're not a boy anymore. You're a beautiful man of God. You see? Look what happens here in verse 42. When, you know, their uncircumcised, un uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then, remember, he's reactionary. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. In verse 43, 
The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. I tell you from experience, sometimes, I don't know your station in life. I don't know where you're at. But sometimes the deepest of pits is the best place to be. Because you are the one who have dug and 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 dug. And you're so exhausted. Your arms hurt. Your shoulders hurt. Your back hurt. Your legs hurt. Everything hurts. And you're digging and digging and digging. And finally, you're exhausted. You look down. What do you see? Dirt. You look all around you. What do you see? Dirt. There's only one place you can look, and that's up. And you see the hand of God. And that's what's so beautiful about the pits. Sometimes pits can be the best place in the world. Because quite often, you see it in the Bible, quite often, pits is where you see Beauty, a person who's humbled before the Lord, a person who is broken before the Lord. And I tell you the truth, when you get to that place, God will heal you. We're reading it right here, His promises. We're reading about it. We're reading about Him. We see more of His character, His love, His nature. Deeper and deeper and deeper. Let's continue. Yet for all that, you see, you know, picture Israel in sin. You know, maybe not here in Leviticus. We're going to see, we're going to get there in the Samuels. We're going to get there in the Chronicles. We're going to get there and you're going to see sin. And you're like, Israel, what are you doing? And he says here in verse 44, yet for all that, it's almost like to Israel to say to them, to question them and say, hey, Israel, are you done? Have you not dug deep enough? And then the Lord sends these prophets. Hey, Amos, I have a job for you. Obadiah, I have a job for you. Nahum, Habakkuk, Haggai, I have a job for you. Amos, I'm no prophet nor the son of a prophet. The Lord says, hey, Amos, surprise, you're a prophet. Because he sees his heart. What about you? What if the Lord is saying to you, hey, are you done? Yeah, you're a crackhead. Are you done? Yeah, you're a sex head. Are you done? Yeah, you're a meth addict. Are you done? Your little text cheat, your little white lies. Are you done? It's exhausting. 
you're digging and digging. Maybe your back hurts already. You're digging, you're digging. Maybe your arms are starting to hurt. You're digging, you're digging. Finally, you put that shovel down. And then you awaken to what you've done. The works of your hands. The desolation that you have caused. And you're humbled. You accept your guilt. You look up and what do you see? Love. The love of God. His grace. His mercy. You see? Old Testament. We're straight up looking at the law. But you get a deeper understanding of God's nature, His character, and His love. And He never changes. And He loves you so much that He takes your sin away from you and places it on His only begotten Son. Not to condemn the world, not to condemn you, but that you, through His only begotten Son, should live. That's how much He loves you. Look at verse 44. Yet for all that, when they're in... When they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Now, let's go back and let's go in a time machine. And let's go back to when this was given. And you might hear something in the audience. You might hear something in the crowd. You might hear something in the camp of Israel. You know, Did Moses just say the members of the covenant of their ancestors in verse 45? And somebody shouts out, hey Moses, Moses, hey this is us. We were in Egypt. The Lord rescued us out of Egypt. It's fresh. It just happened. What are you talking about? Ancestors. You know what's so beautiful about this passages, these passages we've read? Is that God knows Israel's choices. Future choices. To span generations, He knows their choices. And even still, He's gracious and merciful. What about you? What about me? While we were sinners, God sent His only begotten Son. We didn't have to get... You, me, we didn't have to do anything. I, I didn't have to clean my life up and then come to Jesus Christ. My life was filthy. Filthy, filthy, filthy. I tell you the truth, I felt like I could take a million showers, a million showers, high water pressure, and I would still be filthy because it was deep in my heart, deep in my bones, the filth, the wickedness. And God loved me. And I believed in Him. And I repented. And he became my Lord and my Savior. You know what he did? He cleaned me up. 
He does the exact same thing with you. So you hear me say it like, you know, I don't care if you're a crackhead. I don't care if you're a sexhead. I don't care if you're alcoholic, whatever. I say a lot of things. And I really don't care. Murder even. I care that, you you know, that's not good. (laughs) But for the sake of your soul, I want you to become a Christian. And be born again. And be alive in Christ so that when you die, it's appointed for every man to die and then judgment. Since it's appointed for every man to die, I don't want you to be judged. I want you to have paradise and life with Christ. I want to be in Zion with you. So, oh, but you don't understand. I killed 20 guys. Okay, hold on a second. Pray with me. Let's say the sinner's prayer. You say, okay, I'll say the sinner's prayer. You become a Christian. You're my beloved brother in Christ. You're my beloved sister in Christ. You might be a sister that just killed a couple guys. My beautiful, beautiful sister in Christ. Okay, you know, let's embrace. I love you. But now we got to call the cops. And you got to reap what you have sown. And you can start your prison ministry. And I will be with you. I'll comfort you, you know, and like visit you, you know. I'm not there with you. You know, Maybe I'll go to jail for being a Christian. You know, we'll be cellmates. But God loves you. I don't care. The world is filthy. The world is dirty. You don't need me to tell you that. But that's where the fish are. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you must understand understand that. The world is a filthy place. It's not paradise. That's where the fish are. God is long-suffering for these fish. If you're not a believer, God is long-suffering for you. He loves you. Verse 46, These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between Himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. By the hand of Moses. And in accordance with John 5 verse 46. Moses wrote about Jesus. You see. Jesus Christ. Beautiful, beautiful son of the most high God. Holy is his name. And he's coming again to receive his church. To receive his bride. He's coming again. God bless you guys. Love you guys.